0: What's going on? This is The Q Man. Happy to be here with you today and happy to be syndicating with you my last appearance on Palisades Gold Radio, one of my favorite podcasts of all time, one that I listen to. I don't miss a damn episode. This syndication of my appearance last week on Palisades Gold Radio is brought to you by my sponsors, who I love and I support. I'm going to shout them out, and we're going to get on with the show I speak to Tom Bodrovich about uh, Fitch's downgrade of U.S. debt and the ivermectin swindle that I wrote about last week on my blog, Fringe Finance. All right. We all know it's been an uncertain year in the world of finance. Markets are very volatile, and there's been a lot of investment into alternative assets by some of the biggest players in finance. Goldman Sachs and BlackRock say the days of TINA, meaning there was no alternative, are over. RIA reports 88% of surveyed advisors intend to increase allocations to alternatives over the next two years, with over half, 52.6%, raising allocations all the way to 15%. Institutions are already maxed out, 30 to 50% into alternatives. What alternatives are they looking into? Goldman specifically names fine art among the ways to help protect your purchasing power. In 2022, the big three auction houses posted record high revenues of a combined $17.7 billion The best best auction year ever. The global art market is still exceeding its pre-pandemic level, according to a 2023 UBS art market report. How can the regular investor like you and me take advantage? Well, tens of thousands of everyday investors already use today's sponsor, Masterworks, I like these guys a lot. I have no problem when they call me up and they ask me to shout them out on the podcast. It's a place where you can invest without needing millions or an art degree, which is great because I don't have either. Uh, I've invested on Masterworks before I find their platform very easy to use and a great way to gain access to works of art that have price tags that I normally would not have uh, any access to at all. Um, Every painting Masterworks has sold to date has delivered a positive return to their investors, including net annualized return of 10, 17 and even 35 percent. All this year, I see those emails when they come in, I get them. Naturally, of course, past performance is not a guarantee of future returns, as I always say on this podcast, and any investing involves risk, including loss of principal. something I know a lot about. However, Masterworks' 15th exit was just a couple of days ago for an annualized net return of 77.3%, and now you can get priority access to Masterworks, skip the line, and the waiting list. ...by using my code QTR at Masterworks.com. So if you go to Masterworks.com, promo code QTR... ...see important Regulation A disclosures at Masterworks.com CD. One more time, it's Masterworks.com, promo code QTR. Today's syndication of Palisades Gold Radio and the C-Man or the Q-Man... ...whatever you wish to refer to me as, I don't care is also brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. I love JM Bullion. They've been in business for nearly 10 years. They've done over $7 billion in sales. They have incredible prices. They have a great selection of inventory. They turn around my orders quickly. And QTR podcast listeners have their own point of contact at the company. Don't feel like going through the website have questions that you want to ask, tired of navigating websites or phone systems, just reach out to Laura. It's that simple, laura at jmbullion.com. Laura is there just for QTR podcast listeners. You can shoot her an email or a message. If you have any questions about gold and silver bullion, she would be happy to help you out. I am happy to recommend JM Bullion. That's laura, laura at jmbullion.com or jmbullion.com. The link is in my podcast description. Tell them the Q-man sent you, please. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, where George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and a ton of other experts to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. Putting it simply, folks, George Gammon understands exactly just how out-of-whack the central banking model being used across the world is, and he's happy to break it down and explain to you. He's got two great YouTube channels, George Gammon and Rebel Capitalist. He does live question and answer sessions with his expert, what seems like every day I get a notice for a new one. I love to tune in and watch as many of those as I possibly can. Rebel Capitalist Pro has great forums. If you're looking to discuss macro, build a model portfolio, get access to people like Lynn Alden, who has a book that just came out that I ordered. Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson, Chris McIntosh, these guys put their model portfolios up. They give you access to their premium newsletter, all included in Rebel Capitalist Pro, which is worth it. Uh, No questions asked, in my opinion. Uh, Happy to recommend George Gammon and Rebel Capitalist Pro. That link is in my podcast description. Tell him the Q-Man sent you. If you want a free trial, reach out to George. Tell him you heard about him on the QTR podcast Tell them you want to check out the goods. You want to, you want to, I don't want to say that expression. Let's just, (laughs) I was going to say you want to taste the milk before you buy the cow, but that sounds a little, sounds like a little much, doesn't it? (laughs) I don't know why. This podcast, my syndicated interview with Palisades Gold Radio, also brought to you by my friend Sang Lucci over at the Steam Room. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, two of the original gangsters of Tracking unusual options activity, market flow, checking out how to use tape reading in your everyday investing. There's nobody that does it better. These guys pioneered the industry of tracking unusual options activity. That's why I'm happy to recommend the Steam Room. No script. Nobody told me to say that. No nonsense. No bullshit. I know Lucci. I know Wall Street Jesus. I am happy to recommend their product. It is aesthetically pleasing. They have been the trailblazers in tracking unusual options activity for since I've been in the business for the last 10 years. Uh, and they are one community that I can honestly say is worth joining if you are an active trader and you trade uh, actively, especially in the options market. Reach out to Lucci. George Gammon, JM Bullion, or Masterworks, all the links are in my podcast description. Tell them that I sent you. Tell them you want whatever you want. I'm sure they'll try to accommodate you as best as humanly possible Four people that I love, would do business with myself, have done business with myself, and I'm happy to recommend. I have gotten approximately zero complaints since I started my podcast about any of my sponsors. Not even, remember Helle Bacon, The guy that used to, sh- the, that was a sponsor that used to used to charge people to go up in a helicopter and shoot pigs. That was, <laughs> it was like one of my early sponsors. Nobody even complained about that guy. I've never gotten a complaint because I personally vet my sponsors. Happy to recommend Masterworks, J.M. Bullion, George Gammons, Rebel Capitalist Pro, and my friend Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, uh, The Steam Room. Now, folks, I present to you, by the way, I have great content coming up. I have an interview with Andy Sheckman coming out in just days that will talk about um, the new additions to the BRICS countries. Andy and I cover Everything. We go deep on the BRICS nations. We go deep on the U.S. political race. We go deep on what's going on with the U.S. dollar. So that will be out in just a couple of days. Right now, please enjoy my conversation with Tom Bodrovich uh, that I had just a couple of days ago on my favorite podcast, Palisades Gold Radio. Make sure to check them out as well. Happy to syndicate it for you here. The Q Man and Tom Bodrovich, here we go.
1: Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovich. Joining me today is Chris Irons from the Quoth the Raven podcast. How are you today, Chris? I'm great. How are you, Tom? Excellent. Great to have you back. You know, Chris, it's interesting to speak to you kind of in the in the middle of summer here. It always seems kind of dull in a lot of ways. But, you know, you write quite a bit on your, your fringe finance Substack, And you recently highlighted an article written by Thomas Hogan about how much inflation that we've seen since the inception of the Fed. And, you know, it really, when you step back and you see some of the, not even that exciting articles that have come out in the last couple of weeks, you know, when we compare that to, let's say something like the banking crisis that we've seen earlier this year, and you step back and you, you see another piece of news that was the downgrade of the US long-term debt, how does that really kind of catalyze this idea of the inflation that we've seen since the inception of the Fed?
0: Well, they're both, you know, I don't really know how to categorize the two of them working together, but for the fact that they both kind of exist in this under the umbrella of topics that people in the mainstream media like to ignore, (laughs) you know, certainly nobody is talking about, I mean, people are talking about inflation now because it has run rampant and it's out of control to the point where people take notice. And I don't know if you were watching, there was testimony of, Jerome Powell, a couple of weeks ago, in front of Congress, trying to explain why the Fed has a 2% mandate, why 2% is the number. And he offers up this word salad explanation that really is just him chasing his tail for two or three minutes. It gets nowhere and generally arrives at the answer of, well, we're just doing it because that's the globally accepted standard. And there's no justification, there's no analysis, there's no models. There's no math to, to, to back up his reasoning as to why they picked the 2% number. I mean, we all know it's just arbitrary, right? We, we all know it's just kind of picked out of the sky. But there was another guy on Twitter that I retweeted yesterday. So if you go back through my tweets from probably August, so that'll be August 15th or August 16th. Mm-hmm. There is another libertarian thinker that did a great video explaining, basically critiquing Powell's testimony. And what he arrives at is like, look, 2% is the number with which the Fed can steal from people, you know, via inflation without people speaking up about it. So he gives a great analog of going and, you know, stealing a little bit from somebody's bank account every day, but not so much that they notice. And that's really, that seems to be the best explanation for why we arrive at a 2% inflation target to begin with it's so they can just steal enough through inflation and through the devaluation of the currency without people noticing so that falls under the umbrella of nefarious things that happen under cloak of night in the background this goes to my video the weighted blanket theory that i did you know a year or two ago explaining that this is like a weighted blanket that kind of falls on people and they don't really notice it until the weight is fully on them and they can't get out from underneath the blanket. It's just, you know, inflation is an inherently nefarious way to steal Mm -hmm. because it occurs in the background. It occurs in the dark machinery of the night, you know, where people don't really understand that it's happening as it's happening and it's happening all the time it's happening while they're sleeping it's happening while you're at church it's happening while you're at the ball your purchasing power is being taken from you under the guise of these central bankers having a system that they want the world to think they have figured out for a reason but they really don't they don't really know why they do what they do so that horrific odious explanation that he offered up To Congress a couple of weeks ago falls under the same category as the Fitch U.S. long term debt downgrade in the sense that nobody in the mainstream wants to talk about it. And with the downgrade, it's even worse because Fitch came out and downgraded U.S. long term debt for a reason. The reasons were one, they were concerned about the U.S.'s ability to continue to raise the debt ceiling because of the division between. Between the two political parties, lest we fucking forget, Tom, that we shouldn't be raising the debt ceiling to begin with. Right. So that right there should be enough to be put on downgrade watch. Hey, you guys set a spending limit and then you broke it and you broke it again and then you broke it again and then you broke it again and then you broke it again. And, then you broke it again, and all of a sudden, the entire global economy hinges on your ability to continue to be able to push up your spending limit and by the way if that doesn't happen all hell is going to break loose and also we have no intentions of curbing our spending stopping the bad habits that put this in place to begin with or doing anything that could rectify the situation we want to continue to be completely reckless and we want to be able to do it forever and by the way if we can't all hell is going to break loose and the entire global economy hits up. So lest we forget that in and of itself should have been a reason for a U.S. downgrade. But in addition, in addition to the political division and this debt ceiling idiocy, Fitch came out and said, look, the country's fiscal house is not even close to being in order, right? How are we going to be able to manage, you know, like our debt to GDP right now, which is near all time highs by almost a multiple of of its previous uh, prior to COVID? How are we going to manage that when the government has shown no control when it comes to the monetary side of things? Meaning, if you want to look at the monetary and the fiscal house together, the monetary house is us believing that we can continue to do modern monetary theory forever. And it's going to be the solution to everything. We've got it all figured out, right? We're seeing right now with inflation that that's not the case. But we still haven't really been punched in the face the way that we need to over that, the way that we need to understand. So there's nothing in our purview that says to Fitch, we are interested in sound money. We're interested in protecting the sanctity of our money. You know, we're sure as hell not backing the money with anything, right? We know that. We're not going back to the gold standard. So on the monetary side, we're completely flawed. And then on the fiscal side, which is basically when we take the trillions that we print, Tom, and we walk it across the street to the U.S. Treasury and we deposit it into the government's account. And we say, "Okay, for all intents and purposes, here's your free money. Even then, when we get to that point, we still can't manage it properly. So we have a like a a two tiered system of fucking up we fuck up in terms of monetary policy where we print too much money and then we shovel it over to the government who misallocates it to a degree the likes of which we've never seen every time they audit the pentagon another trillion dollars is missing so it's like this double-edged sword of horrific inefficiency and fitch happened to be first out of all the other rating agencies to point that out s&p downgraded us in 2011 at one point based on debt ceiling stuff as well. But Fitch had more than just the debt ceiling stuff. They raised legitimate questions about the country's ability to pay back its obligations, especially with rates rising. Right, the interest on the national debt is—it's tremendous. It's a trillion dollars a year or something now. So Fitch is first to the party. Who is Fitch? Right, they are a, one of the big three rating agencies. They have been in business for over a hundred years. And they were roundly criticized with the rest of the rating agencies back during the housing crisis for not being quick enough, for not seeing the problems before they tank the entire system. You remember that? The rating agencies caught a lot of the blame. If you go back and you watch the big short, there's this scene where Mark Baum walks into S&P's office and tries to tell them that the mortgage market is on the verge of collapse. And she tells him, there's nothing we can do. And he says, you guys are whores, you know. And so everybody was keen to blame the rating agencies, Tom, in 2008 for not being there quick enough. Mackie and you know, Paulson and everybody else that had the wool pulled over the eyes of themselves in the U.S., you know, Joe Sixpack here in the U.S. But everybody had no problem criticizing the rating agencies. For not being there ahead of the game. Well, now what do you got? You have Fitch, which is a hundred and something years old, and is headquartered in the U.S. and in London, coming out early and saying, "Hey, there might be some slight warning signs here in the U.S. that we might want to pay attention to." They didn't take us from AAA to C; they took us from AAA to AA plus, right? But I mean, when you're talking about U.S sovereign debt, even the smallest downgrades reverberate with huge aftershocks because of, you know, how many treasuries are on issue all over the world. So Fitch has the foresight to come out and do this. And all of a sudden, everybody, every single person in the financial media, every single sell side analyst, every major hedge fund manager, Warren Buffett, Janet Yellen, the treasury secretary, Jerome Powell, and anybody and everybody that has a tie to the financial industry, comes out the next day and says that this downgrade was arbitrary, capricious, incorrect, outdated. And basically, Melissa Lee on CNBC said, you know, should we think it's distrustful? I mean, they just came out. Everybody came out and laughed in the face of this downgrade. Warren Buffett said, there's a lot of things we should worry about, but this isn't one of them. Janet Yellen said it's arbitrary, as if people are just sitting around the boardroom table at Fitch, twiddling their thumbs, looking for something to do. And thinking, in the absence,
1: I, thinking, I know what'll rile up the bee's nest.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In the absence of having anything to do, that they'll just go and downgrade the debt of the country that they're headquartered in. You know, let's just see if we can just shake shit up on a Tuesday for no reason. Which, so you have which Yellen.
1: Yellen is probably kind of responding to the verbiage in that as well, saying the steady deterioration in governance, right? That was a big part of why they downgraded it.
0: Correct. And that was, you know, that holds merit. That's a meritorious reason Mm -hmm. to downgrade the debt. So, because, you know, the country's out of control, the deficits are out of control, and nobody has shown a shred of integrity or intelligence or conservatism or financial acumen in how we plan on dealing with this stuff going forward. We don't even have a plan that makes a shred of sense. Nobody in government has given anybody the indication that they're interested in curbing spending, that they, you know, want to rein in the deficit. Nobody has conveyed that at all. So what are they left to do? I mean, in the absence of not a shred of reason or common sense with in a country whose financial situation is really, you know, it's spiraling out of control. I don't really know how else to put it. I mean, there's just... The Fed keeps raising rates. There's just no way that that we're going to be able to continue to manage our obligations in terms of interest, what we owe. And when the world catches on to that, I think somebody said this on your show maybe six months ago. I remember I was out for a run in Montreal and I was listening. It was probably four months ago. Maybe it was Luke Groman. Somebody said, you know, they'll catch on eventually when they realize that we can't keep up with the interest payments on the debt. And from there, it'll be a pretty quick unwind. So circling everything back to your original question, all right, you have these dickless, spineless cowards, not just in the financial media, but in the financial industry, out trying to tell people that you know what Fitch has done here is arbitrary and outdated. I mean, there's nothing more pathetic than watching financial news anchors have a circle jerk and congratulate themselves about how everything's fine and Fitch has it wrong. But Melissa Lee on the desk at CNBC, she's got it right. Janet Yellen says this is arbitrary. She throws it over to Tim Seymour. She said, Tim, does that make the downgrade more uh, distrustful? Distrustful. This is Fitch. You know, this isn't a fucking sell side note from Maxim Group. This is Fitch as in, you know, Fitch, Moody's and S&P, the three major rating agencies. So, you know, they're not going out of their way to deceive people. I mean, they have in the past, I'm sure. And I'm sure that they've been slow to act in the past. But in a situation like this, it's not them, you know. And Tim Seymour says they're just doing this in the absence of data, he said. He said something like that. They're doing it in the absence of data or they're doing it in the absence of having specific financial metrics. And I felt like grabbing the TV and just saying, look at a fucking chart of debt to GDP. That's it. Just look at that. Just look at that one chart, okay? The absence of real metrics. These people are fucking brainwashed, Tom. They're half brainwashed and they're half, you know, useless idiots for the mainstream narrative, for the government's narrative. They're helping politicians stay elected. They are allergic to any type of news that is the slightest bit uncomfortable. They are scared shitless of the shit hitting the fan they won't know how to handle themselves and they are daily on the daily constantly hoping and praying that nothing goes wrong every single day they just want to make it from the beginning of their lives to the end of their lives without anybody fucking up the works or asking any critical questions or shaking up the economic picture at all so that they can get from point a to their golf trip in Fort Lauderdale, without anybody bothering them, and that's all that's going on here. These people are all going to be dealt a wake-up call. It's in the process of happening. Right now, you have the BRICS nations actively and openly challenging the U.S. dollar, talking about gold-backed reserve currency. Everybody is laughing at that. I saw Shemath Polyapatia put a tweet up today, you know, like, tell me you're an idiot without telling me you're an idiot. Use the words BRICS and de-dollarization in a tweet. It's like, all right, motherfucker, first off, you brought like 10 of the world's worst specs to market, all of which are down like, you know, between like 50 and 90% now. That's another thing for another day. But second off, laugh it up. You know what I mean? I don't give a shit. Laugh it up. Call me an idiot. Call me a conspiracy theorist. Call me a fucking tinfoil hat guy. I don't really care, Tom, because, you know, when we look back in a couple of decades, it's going to be so clear. What was taking place here, that we're watching the end of this empire, that people then will be laughing at how these other people couldn't notice. And, you know, I suppose they will probably be sad as well, because it's sad to be in the middle of it witnessing it. So let's talk. The Fed's 3,000% inflation that they just hit, which was an article that you're talking about, and which is downgrade of U.S. debt, which is being written off and laughed at by everybody in the industry they fall under a category called, you know, I'll take, I'll take things nobody wants to talk about in the financial media and people try to blissfully ignore, but are doing so at their own peril for 1000. Alex, how's
1: that for an answer? Well, it's it's funny, you know, thinking about this, and I just finished reading a book called The, the confidence map by Peter Atwater. I think it was very recently written and released. And he goes through and talks about you know two thousand and eight or even September eleventh. He goes through all kinds of different examples, not just financial examples, but you know using let's say the two thousand and eight financial crisis, he's talking about the headlines in the media that reflect actual bottoms and you know we talk about this in the gold industry all the time. One of the good ones that comes to mind is the death of inflation in it. It was a yeah, that copy was the of economist the, the economist, right. Uh, yeah. so the death of inflation in 2008 his example was you know everybody's scared the market has much further to fall everybody is selling and yet these mark perfect bottoms almost all the time so you know again stepping back and seeing the media for marking the exact opposite and just highlighting people's feelings rather than more so objective fact is just it seems to be more so the norm rather than the exception to the rule. Well, yeah, it's people just, I don't know, you know,
0: I mean, you could make that argument now that everybody in the financial world thinks we're going to have a soft landing. Everybody thinks that the Fed is winning its war on inflation. Everybody thinks that five and a half percent rates are not going to beget some type of financial crisis, despite the fact that we just blew the world's largest asset bubble for the last 20 years, and people have taken on perverse amounts of debt. So I mean, when everybody is in the same camp, basically trying to ignore what to me and you looks like reality, I think that bodes well for us. You know, I think that bodes well. I think what's going to happen here with gold specifically, and I've written about this before, too, is We're going to see a massive deleveraging across the board here. It's on its way. It's already baked into the cake. It's in the, you know, the pipe bomb is already going through the plumbing of the economy, as I've been saying for the last 18 months, that five and a half percent rate pipe bomb. We're just kind of waiting for it to blow. So you can sit around and hope and pray and wish that the economy is going to have a soft landing. But mathematically, it's an impossibility and it's not going to happen. When the massive deleveraging starts to take place, everything is going to get sold off. Everything, equities, bonds, and even the metals. The metals shouldn't sell off because we know what the response is going to be from the central banks, and that will put a charge into metals. But when people need liquidity, they'll get it by selling anything that's not bolted down. And this means they will be selling their gold futures, their silver futures, their gold mining stocks, their silver mining stocks, etc., When that puke happens, and it feels like we're not that far from it, but I've been saying that for 18 months. So as a cautionary disclaimer, I'm often wrong about all kinds of things. When that happens, that's when I'm going to be ready to pretty much kick it almost into all in when it comes to metals, because what will happen next is, and and actually, I think we're pretty close to seeing this already with,
1: you know, China's on the verge of collapse right now. And I think just to your point, though, you know, there's, there's a lot of these Michael Burry speculation accounts on Twitter, and one of them pointed out the other day that he bought $1.5 billion in puts on the SPY and QQQ. So right. with kind of the, the saying, what does he know that we don't, right? And it seems like, to your point about this big, you know, capitulation moment, of, as you've called it in the past, coming in the markets, you know, when do we get this point, as, as Peter Schiff says, that the fundamentals all point to – Yet we still have yet to see. It's just it's just interesting that it has taken this long, even with rates where they are. We have all this
0: liquidity in the system as a result of all the money, you know, from COVID that was handed out. There's more liquidity in the system than there's ever been. So we're going to have to contract in a way that we've never contracted for before that tripwire is hit. And then, you know, there's kind of the black swan unknowns right will there be a major corporate fraud that goes down will there you know will china go down first will there be some type of global catalyst there will be something eventually that sets this thing off and once it sets off then that's it once psychology is broken then we're standing on shaky ground the question is you know look as i'm saying as i'm talking about the metals we know what's going to happen after the market crashes which is the fed is going to come in and they're going to try they're going to cut rates They're going to inject liquidity and they're going to try to nail everything out. And that's when the metals are going to go apeshit. And so that's that's why I think that first deleveraging, that first crash, the thing that Michael Burry is betting on will be the spot to make the move to make. You know, I've been long gold and silver forever, but a spot to make a pronounced move to try to pull out like the bazooka. And I think Burry is just betting on the math. You know, I don't I don't think that he knows anything that the rest of us don't you know, that everybody's going to have to start paying an extra $400 a month in student loan payments. And already everybody's cost of debt is the highest it's been in decades. And so people are paying significantly more now than they were two years ago, just to meet their bills every month. At the same time, you know, as everybody has less cash to spend discretionarily, that will start to take a hit on companies. It'll start to take a hit. It'll start showing up in the earnings reports. People will be spending less. They'll be stretched more. Credit card debt is like at or near all time highs right now. Delinquencies have started to tick up on all different types of loans. The average car payment right now is something ridiculous. It's like $700 a month for the average monthly car payment right now. So we are getting to the point where, as an economy, we are as stretched as we can get. And it's when you get stretched thin and then something bad happens. You know, just like in your personal life, what causes people to file bankruptcy? Well, you know, you go out and you spend everything you have and you say, "Okay, I'm going to work real hard over the next year and build my savings back up. But before you have a chance to do that, you endure some type of emergency where you need the cash and you can't get it. You have a medical emergency and all of a sudden you're in a huge hole and there's no way out. And that's when you wind up filing bankruptcy. So we're just at that point where we are stretched very, very, very thin. And I think Michael Burry is just betting on the likely outcome, which is, you know, at some point something will give and the economy and the market will take a turn for the worse. It's such an odd situation now because like the Atlanta Fed raised their GDP estimates today to 5.8%. And a lot of these macro numbers that come in keep coming in better than people expect. And so what people want is they want poor macro data because they think that will be an impetus for the fed to cut rates. So when poor data comes in, the market rallies and when good data comes in, the market falls like it's falling today after that GDP number came out, because people will assume that the economy hasn't cooled off enough to kind of get the fed to say, okay, like we're making our way to our goal here. Interesting interesting way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, You know, you're playing you're playing five D chess. There's like fifty different, you know, ways to try to figure out the game theory of what's happening here. But the one certainty, regardless of whether good news is bad news or bad news is good news or bad news is bad news or good news is good news, without trying to figure all that out, the shit will hit the fan at some point. And when that happens, the Fed will step in and they will try to cut rates and increase liquidity. Those are two certainties I think like I said, we're gonna see it in China. That'll be next. And I think when that happens, I think it's gonna be all commodities, Tom. Um, I think commodities are just gonna go bananas. The metals, of course, will be in tow with that. But I think Michael Burry is right. You know, he's he's made these kind of bets before, you know, where he's like bet against Kathy Wood and he's bet against other companies on the fundamentals, and sometimes they haven't worked out for him. You know, what did he what did he get famous for with the big short? He got famous for recognizing fundamentals that the rest of the market was either willingly ignoring or didn't notice. And, you know, things are a little different since 2008 because there's so much more liquidity. And so isn't always the case that fundamentals take the day. They don't. Otherwise, you know, Carvana would be bankrupt and, AMC would be bankrupt, and the market would be much lower already. So there's a psychological element here, and a you know market being askew as a result of all this increased liquidity element here that he may not be accounting for in a way because you didn't need to account for it that way in 2008. Having said that, what do I think his style is? I think his style is to try to find irrefutable, unbreakable fundamentals i.e. the mathematics behind the scene that come hell or high water are going to wind up driving the outcome at any certain given point and i think that's what he sees here i think he sees five and a half percent interest rates on the largest amount of debt that's ever been outstanding with with an economy that's grinding to a halt or will be grinding to a halt eventually And the only real bull case for equities, because you can't make a valuation bull case right now, right? You can't say that they're cheap because they're not. And especially if earnings start to decline, right? The multiples will get bigger if earnings start to come down. So you can't make a case that they're cheap. The only bull case for equities is the federal cut rates. That's your only bull case right now. you know. So if you're buying stocks now, at least for, I don't know, let's say the next five-year window... You're doing it because you think the Fed is going to effectuate some type of macro environment where it forces stocks to go up, where there's increased liquidity and lower rates and a lower cost of capital. None of that is fundamental. That is a psychological slash Fed game theory thesis. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals. If all things were staying equal and the Fed was not interfering into the market, there is no fundamental case with the S and P at 25 times earnings. For coming out and saying there's a value here, there's no value. So I think Burry sees that. He sees that as the only bull case, and he sees all this other shit on the side of the bear case. And I agree with him. I think that there are far more ways to lose if you're long here than there are to win. And I think he's placing his bets accordingly.
1: So Chris, getting back to your point about China, you know, you've done a lot of work analyzing China, Chinese stocks. Is that, you know, basically a credit crunch that's happening there right now, as you understand it?
0: Well, it is, and I think the better question is going to be, you know, how is the Chinese central bank, has the PBOC going to respond? Um. So even more so, you know, we went through this when when we were talking about Evergrande the last time we talked or two or three times ago when we talked maybe a year ago, you know, talking about. Is Evergrande going to bring down the entire global economy? And I think what I said then was, you know, its I don't think it's big enough. I think that, you know, the country will engineer some type of bailout and life will go on. And I think to some extent, that's what's going to happen here. You know, you have some of these huge hundred billion dollar companies now missing debt service payments in China. But the question is, you know, here's what I would say about China. I would be more concerned about China's contentious relationship with the United States than I would be over a credit crunch that could potentially send aftershocks through the global economy, because China really isn't a leading force for the global economy. I mean, it's it's a large player in the global economy, but the US kind of leads China. That's not, you know, that's why when the Evergrande thing happened, the global markets didn't crash. It was just kind of, it was a belch. And we, we hiccuped and we made our way through it. I would be more worried about Taiwan. I would be more worried about this growing cantankerous relationship between the two countries right now. You saw Intel had to pull its bid for tower semiconductor this morning because China was dragging its feet and getting the regulatory stuff done necessary for the merger to consummate. Those types of things, I think, I think they belie a, uh, I think they belie a a tension between the two countries that I'm not sure we've seen at any point recently. And one that I don't think is especially clear to our current administration, I don't think they get it. I don't think it's ever been clear to the left. I think they've always kind of thought, well, China's our friend, you know, we're allies. It's like, no, we're not. Like, they hate us. They want our spot on the, uh, on the, on the global economic stage. And in general, they are far more shrewd than we are and are willing to endure far more pain than we are or that we can handle. And in- so. Endure or inflict? No, endure, meaning if China needs to go through some hard times, uh, but it's perceived as being for the better good of the country and something that would, you know, help them get a leg up on the United States, they would do it. And this is what I mean by like, you know, all of the spies that we keep finding in the U.S., right? China has spies in the NYPD. They have them over here. Yeah, they have them over here stealing intellectual property. You know, they don't care. They're ruthless. Right now, digitally, one of my big themes that I write about on my blog, Fringe Finance, is cybersecurity is one of the industries that I've been very, very bullish on. For nonstop for like a year and a half now, because a lot of this Cold War that's going on between these two countries is going to be fought digitally and already is being fought digitally. And they have an attitude of, you know, pull no punches, no holds barred, take no prisoners and and do whatever you got to do to get the leg up, which is why. You know, you get people stealing intellectual property from Motorola. You get all these stories you hear about Chinese IP theft. It's why I don't trust having HIC Vision cameras inside of the Pentagon. Things like that. All those little instances where people would say they would never do that. They would never be spying on us right inside the Pentagon with their own cameras. Somebody would need to be watching to make sure that that's not happening. They would never be so bold. They would definitely be so bold. And the only thing that's missing out of this equation is them going into Taiwan. And if that happens, the U.S. is going to have some very hard choices to make about how we're going to respond. And we will be doing it at a time where we're already trying to support an entirely different country in Ukraine, who we have sent, you know, whatever, $100 billion to. So we're we're fighting a war that's not really our war, that we're Just another item that we're laying on the back of the U.S. dollar, which I said on my podcast yesterday at this point is like, you know, donkey trying to make its way up Mount Everest with an obese person on its back. Right. There's like how much more shit can we pile onto the back of the fact that the dollar is the global reserve currency. But we're already we're already using it to support Ukraine. What happens if China goes into Taiwan? Then we have to use it to try to support Taiwan also. And at what point does the empire become spread so thin that it becomes unstable? Everybody knows when you play the game Risk, the game of global world domination, you can't have one little person in every country. You have to have a base where you consolidate your armies. And then you got to start to move a little by little by little. You can't spread yourself so thin. If I have one little guy in all the countries, I can say, yeah, I occupy all the countries, but a stiff fucking breeze would knock any one of them over. And so... You know, if China goes into Taiwan, that's something we're going to have to handicap. All right, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to be in Taiwan also? Are we going to support them also? And by the way, have I mentioned it's a trillion dollars a year now we're paying on our national debt? Where's the money going to come from? You know, how high will taxes have to go? Where's the revenue going to come from to support this? How much more money do we have to print? And what does that do to inflation, which is already out of control? So it's a very precarious situation that we're in. And I would be far more worried about that than I would be about China's economy being in a credit crunch.
1: Yeah, you know, Chris, thinking about all of these different things, I just get this vision in my head of almost just a thousand plates spinning in the air and, and wobbling. Yeah. And, and maybe Sleepy Joe trying to run around and keep all of them spinning. Right. That's, that's maybe, uh, you know, adds more of a comedic element to it. But, you know, you've been writing quite a bit about COVID and all of the pieces to that puzzle recently and just makes me wonder if there are so many of these different pieces that are inaccurately reported, inaccurately presented to the world and or let's say just the American people that don't necessarily listen to you or I or any of the people in our world, if that is really kind of what's keeping this thing afloat for now. Until we get this real kind of hammer smash in the face moment where the shit really hits the fan.
0: what you think that you think that I don't understand what you're saying. You think that the COVID narrative is kind of keeping keeping the whole fantasy alive?
1: Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying that the inaccurate way that, let's say, the downgrade on U.S. debt, the way it's, it's portrayed right. in the mainstream media, the way that, let's say, the COVID narrative or. As you recently wrote about the ivermectin thing, that was, you know, at a time it was presented as this animal dewormer that isn't effective whatsoever, and right, you know, the lab leak theory. That was NBC, NBC
0: News called NBC News called ivermectin widely discredited. That's what they called it. It's on the it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's been administered billions of times to human beings. It's one of the safest drugs known to man, and it's shown efficacy. In numerous clinical trials, when used to treat COVID early, and NBC News runs with the headline "widely discredited." Yeah, you know, look, there's reason people listen to your show, and the reason that I can afford to keep my lights on because I have a couple of subscribers that read my newsletter, is because thank God not everybody takes their talking points from the mainstream media or from the government. And if you let, you know, if you let them dictate how you think. You're going to not only miss out on, you know, the world burning in the background, which, you know, me and you will sit back and we'll, we'll toast our glass of Jack Daniels together when that happens, because there'll be nothing that we can do at that point. They'll not only miss out on that, but, you know, look, people, people are happy to be told what to, what to think, Tom. People are happy to, you know, have their thinking be done for them and then to take the conclusions. That the government or the mainstream media hands them and to go out and parade them around like they're virtuous or like they're smart. But, you know, luckily for us, and we have a small audience of people that see things a little bit differently. So look with, and I just, I did a podcast on this a couple of days ago and I wrote about this on my blog of Fringe Finance. The, the Fitch thing is just like the ivermectin thing in the sense that. We're being fed a narrative, right? That narrative is that the Fitch downgrade doesn't mean anything. And and almost that it's being done in error or being done, you know, out of, out of like malicious means, right? That's the narrative we're being fed. But the reality of this situation is Fitch has damn good reason to do what they've done. Ivermectin was the same thing. We were purposefully misinformed. I mean, anybody that did their own research... On ivermectin, and I'm not talking about digging into all the clinical studies and you know using a you know using a microscope and looking at the excruciating details of everything. I'm talking about people that just spent 20 minutes or 30 minutes doing a little reading on their own and thinking for their own knew that ivermectin showed promise, showed efficacy. If you listen to people like Dr. Pierre Corey and you talk about you know its use in in clinical situations. And the way that he expounded on it and talked about its antiviral properties, you knew that it was worth it. And and at the very least, you knew that it was so safe and had been proven so safe over the years that likely wasn't going to harm you, even if it didn't have the efficacy that you thought it had. So to watch the media come out, okay, the mainstream media was sponsored by. Pfizer, during the entire pandemic, every show that you turned on, and if you listen to my podcast before this one, it's number 316, later in the podcast, I play a montage of all of the CNN and NBC shows that were all sponsored by Pfizer, and they all say brought to you by Pfizer, right? Pfizer sponsored all these mainstream media shows, Pfizer could only make its billions of dollars off the vaccines The experimental, untested mRNA vaccines with no long-term safety data, important to say, it could only make its money off of those under the emergency use authorization, which said there could not be any other types of treatment available. Nothing else shows efficacy, so we're using these vaccines as an emergency. So when something like ivermectin inconveniently pops up for these pharmaceutical industries, Many of whom have CEOs who have already sent the plans and drawings for their new yachts to the construction companies already under the assumption that they're going to reap billions of dollars from it. It really is a fucking fly in their ointment. It's a thorn in their side, right? Just another fly in the ointment, Hans. It's devastating to them because it would prevent them from selling all of these vaccines, which, by the way, they overpriced and our government misallocated printed money and paid for with it just like i was talking about before so just another waste fraud and abuse you know money that was printed out of thin air that caused the inflation problem that we're in now was then given to the government which then used it to overpay for vaccines that probably should have never hit the market anyways that's what i mean earlier when i say misuse of allocation of capital so we were told by the media who was sponsored by pfizer that ivermectin, not that it didn't have efficacy in COVID because they did say that despite there being multiple clinical trials that show different. And you can look at C19IVM.com, C19IVM.com or C19IVM.org, which is where all of the clinical trials for COVID are listed. We were told eh, not so much that it didn't have efficacy. We were told not so much that, hey, There's a human version of it, but it also happens to be used for veterinary purposes, too. But by the way, that's different, and doctors have been prescribing it for humans forever, and it's very safe. Now, we weren't told that. We were told ivermectin is horse dewormer, period. That's what we were told. We were lied to and misinformed maliciously on purpose by the media who made a safe, Drug on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines that has been administered billions of times to human beings and has best safety profile since, like amoxicillin. Right? The person who invented it received a Nobel Prize. It was essentially a fucking miracle drug. It had no safety issues at all. We were told that that drug, ubiquitous in the pharmaceutical world, ubiquitous on that list of essential medicines. The FDA turns around and says, you're not a horse. Don't take it. That goes past gross negligence, Tom. You know, negligence is one thing. You want to sit there and try to make the argument to me that the FDA didn't know there was a human version of this drug, too. And they were just saying this because people were only taking the veterinary version of the drug and they needed to speak up. Well, then you come out and you say, all right, there's two versions. The human version is safe. Don't take the veterinary version, morons. You don't just come out like Don Lemon did when Joe Rogan said he's taking ivermectin and post on the Chiron on the screen on CNN. I have this on my blog. The article is called The Unforgivable Ivermectin Swindle. It's 100% free to read. I'm not selling anything. Check it out on my blog. The photo was in there of Don Lemon sitting in front of a Chiron that says Joe Rogan is taking unproven horse dewormer ivermectin. And that's just a lie because he wasn't. He was not taking the veterinary version of the drug. He told Tom Tom Segura on the subsequent podcast, it's like, look, I got it right here on the table. I got a prescription from a doctor. You know, so this ingenuous nature that we were, you know, the way that we were lied to from the media over ivermectin was an unforgivable, horrific travesty. End of story, full stop. And if you go back and you do a little bit of reading on it, you want to even poke even further. Okay, how much money do people like Tony Fauci make from the pandemic? Okay, look at that. If you want to poke a little bit further, how about all those clinical studies that popped up during COVID that discredited ivermectin? Well, why don't you tell me a little bit more about those? There's a link in my blog that goes to a discussion that talks about how many of those studies were conflicted, and many of them were done not under false pretenses, but were engineered in a way so that they would not meet their primary endpoint. They cut off certain data sets. They were administering it too late in COVID when everybody's making the argument ivermectin should be used early in COVID. There's a bunch of different ways which those clinical trials arrived at conclusions that were convenient for the pharmaceutical companies that may not necessarily be honest. So you can go look into that if you want. But the point is, if you look at this whole canon of facts, the way that the media presented ivermectin, versus the way I've know what we've known about ivermectin for decades, versus the success ivermectin had in places like India, where they used it to treat people. And then you look at how it was talked about in the media. And then you see that last week, the FDA came out during a court hearing, and very cavalierly and casually said, oh, doctors can prescribe ivermectin for COVID. We never said doctors couldn't do that. It's like, wow, all of a sudden, now that the vaccine grift is over, yeah, we'll just throw that out there. That's what's called a limited hangout, I think, right? And so that is disgraceful. And if you're not red-pilled by examining that full canon of facts and how the whole ivermectin, and I encourage you to do your own research. Go look at both sides of the coin. You know, find me on my blog, write me a comment and tell me I'm an idiot. If you find otherwise, maybe there's some big, huge fact that I'm missing. But if there isn't, it was one of the greatest swindles in history. And if you think that that can't be exactly what's happening right now with this Fitch downgrade, then you don't have your fucking head plugged in, okay? Because we saw it with the lab leak, which is what we were just talking about before, right? We were told for two years, you can't even say lab leak. Sure, the virus happened to be discovered 12 feet from a level four bio lab where they were examining coronaviruses. But if you connect the world's two closest dots, You're a fucking conspiracy theorist. You're a freak of nature. You need to be banned from social media. All right. Now, all of a sudden, Washington Post, all these other outlets. Yeah, well, maybe it did come from the lab. Oh, maybe it did. Ah, It took you two and a half years to figure that out. And it wasn't that it took them two years to figure it out. It's that they were doing damage control. And if you don't understand that, you got to look through the FOIAs. Look through Anthony Fauci's emails. Look through Christian Anderson's emails. They knew this motherfucker came from the lab. They knew that it was not natural of origin back when it happened. They were discussing it on email in 2020, okay? They were saying, I'm 60-40 or I'm 70-30 that it came from the lab. So if you don't think that that same type of false narrative can be fed to us when it comes to the economy and it comes to our great... US empire. And by the way, I love the United States. Absolutely love it. I consider myself a patriot. Love this country. I've been all over the world. Love the United States. This is home to me. Right. And I have a lot of reverence and respect for our country and for our founders and for our constitution. But if you don't think that just like any other you know nation state that we will go to whatever length possible to utilize whatever propaganda necessary to protect ourselves and let us further the scheme that we're perpetuating to keep our elected officials in office and you can't get red-pilled from looking at this fiasco with you know like what they did with ivermectin or what they did with the lab leak or what they did with hunter biden's laptop which we were told by 51 former intelligence officials tom wow that sounds like serious shit doesn't it 51 former, not, not 10, not 15, not 25 random people from the government, not 30, not 40, not 45, not 45 lobbyists, 51. 51 what? 51 former intelligence officials. It's right in the name, intelligence. These are the people tasked with getting facts indisputably correct. And all 51 of them, or how 52 or 51, came out and signed the letter saying that this thing was Russian disinformation. And guess fucking what? Turns out the president's son was just smoking crack in a fucking hotel room in Geneva and banging Eastern European hookers. And by the way, I don't have any problems with that. Just don't lie to me about it. You know, just don't lie to me about it. So look, if you think the wool can't be pulled over your eyes and you think that these people aren't trying to protect their interests and that they have some type of moral dilemma, With lying to you, think again, because you are being lied to, and it is your responsibility to think for yourself and to try to figure this out. And when it comes to the investing world, you want to have the roadmap that nobody else has. You want to be able to identify the black swans before they become black swans. You know? Great might. Yeah. You might, you know, it might fuck up the rest of the world, but you don't want them to fuck up your world. Right. That's your that's the reason you stay informed. That's the reason you listen to podcasts. It's the reason for research. It's the reason you think for yourself. Like we've talked about in the past, Tom, you want the best for you and your family and the people that you love and your community. And, you know, you just you want the best for your country, too. Mm -hmm. So you try to stay informed and that's all you can do, man because everybody else can't be helped. You know, if you go out of your way, you try to help. I get on my podcast, I say what I got to say. But if people disagree, that's energy I'd rather be using to go out and, you know, go dancing or drink a beer or, you know, be in love with somebody or hang out with my parents. You know, I used to, I used to feel like it was a war I had to fight every second of every day. But I can't. I'm 40. I'll be 41. I'll be dead soon. I want to spend these last, you know, however many years... Breathing a little bit too. I encourage your listeners to continue to do their own research because nobody's going to do it for you. And nobody's here to help you, myself included. Okay. So I don't want you to buy my bullshit any more than you're going to buy anybody else's bullshit.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it, Chris. And, you know, I think the ability to be able to listen to somebody or read somebody that you disagree with, but try to understand where they're coming from is a skill that everybody myself and i'm sure yourself included can get better at just because we might disagree with it doesn't mean it can necessarily be wrong but as you say it's it's so hard to separate the truth from fiction in this day and age right that i think that's why i try to interview a good amount of people because everybody has a great argument for their viewpoint and right i'm just trying to triangulate where i think we're headed from you know, many different opinions and see where they they match up, see what I agree with, see what I don't, toss that out, keep that, and try to formulate a picture of the world based on listening to, let's say, 10 of the smartest people in the room and see where
0: that makes sense to me. That's the best you can do. You know, like George Gammon, I know, disagrees with me about some shit that I put online last week. And I didn't say to him, you know, screw you, George. I said, come on the podcast next week and let's talk about it. You're probably right. You're much smarter than I am. So I'd like to hear your viewpoint on it. And then we can hash it out. It's when you start to censor viewpoints that things become dangerous. And this is what should be perking up the ears and the eyes and the senses of your readers. And certainly it's what perks up the eyes and the ears of me, which is... When they try to censor you, we were talking before we started the recording about January 6th. Now, talking about Ray Epps, regardless of whether or not that guy was an FBI plant, I don't even give a shit. Okay. Let's just throw that whole thing out. But for you to be censored for asking the question of why is he being treated differently than some of the other people that were arrested, that went to court, that went to trial, that are spending six months, a year, six years in prison for seditious conspiracy. And this guy's on tape telling people to go into the Capitol and they've got him on text message saying I orchestrated it. And you're going to censor me for asking the very reasoned question of why is he being treated differently? Why are the rest of these people seditious conspiracies? But Ray Epps gets a puff piece in the New York times. Is that a strange question to ask? I don't think so. I think that's just a normal, honest question. So when people start censoring you for asking Normal, reasoned, intelligent questions, that's when you need to be scared because that is another tool that will be used to shut down the narrative that is inconvenient to people. doesn't matter whether or not it's the truth, Tom. If it's inconvenient to the powers that be, it's not going to make its way out there. And it doesn't matter whether they need to shut down your Facebook or shut down your PayPal account or turn off your website or ban you from Instagram, or kick you off Twitter, they will shut you down if they don't like what you have to say. And that's what should make people very nervous, because you are right. How do we arrive at the best conclusions, the best practices for ourselves, and the people that we love? We've talked about this a million times, Tom, me and you. How do we get there? How do we get to the nectar? How do we whittle away all the bullshit to get to the objective truth that's going to help us make the best decisions, whether they're investment decisions or life decisions. We do it by getting all the facts on the table, everything. All right. Like that old expression, let's just throw all the shit against the wall and see what sticks. Right. But you can't start messing with the initial data set of crap that you have to sift through. When you start censoring data, or viewpoints or arguments from the beginning, then you don't have them as you make your way through the you know, critical thinking process to try to determine which ones hold merit. So you're at a loss already from the beginning. And that's why censorship really is nefarious and really is malicious. You need to be okay with understanding that sometimes people are gonna make arguments that are different from yours and that they're gonna make arguments that are sometimes outright, incorrect they are outright wrong what's a good example i love reading i love reading zero hedge right when the russia ukraine war was about to start and all those troops were lined up on the border russia's troops were lined up on the border of ukraine zero hedge was very skeptical that russia was going to go in now i take their viewpoint seriously cuz they've been right about a lot of things in the past and i like reading it even when they're wrong i like hearing their argument as to why and what happened the next day Russia went into Ukraine. So Zero Hedge was wrong. And I say, oh my God, I'm never reading this website again. I said, no, it's nice to know that they can get things right and wrong. And it's nice to know that the mainstream lie that we were being fed actually turned out to be the truth this time. That's called understanding all the perspectives and having a reasoned, sensible, balanced look at things in your head. You can't be afraid of doing that. And that's just life. Just like you're not going to be comfortable all the time, which is like, you know, that's the deal with this Fitch thing, right? Why isn't Tim Seymour sitting on television saying, yeah, the Fitch thing really should be taken seriously? Because it's going to make people uncomfortable. It would make him uncomfortable. It would make the sponsors uncomfortable. It would make the viewers uncomfortable. And God forbid, Tom, we can't have discomfort. We can't have discomfort, and we can't have personal responsibility. Those are the two things that we just don't care for in this country at all. So by any means necessary, we try to keep people comfortable. And you just have to understand that's not how it's always going to be. You have to make peace with the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable at points in life that you're going to have to hear viewpoints that you don't agree with. And that many times those viewpoints are going to be correct. You know, just embrace it and suck on it now and make peace with it. And life will be so much better going forward. You'll feel a
1: breath of fresh air going forward. Once you let that go. Being afraid of being uncomfortable, I think is what got us into this situation. And I think that that, is an easy path to get into some really tricky positions because instead of taking the the hard pill, which it seems at the time we've kicked this down the road so far that again, when the shit really hits the fan, man, is this going to be a hard pill to swallow?
0: Oh, the discomfort will be off the charts. Yeah. It'll be, a, it'll be, a but it'll be somebody a else's
1: problem. Yeah.
0: Right, right.
1: Well, Chris, I think that's a good place to wrap this conversation up, unless you have anything else you'd like to mention. Tom,
0: really appreciate it, man. I always love talking to you. I'm glad that we were able to link up today and hope uh, hope we get to talk again soon. I hope it's not, you know. Oh, the other thing, too, is the last time we talked, I went on record and made a guarantee. I don't know if you remember, but I remember I was standing when I said this to you. I was I was in the park outside of Society Hill Towers, milling my way around Old City, Philadelphia. And I stopped walking for a second and I stood in one place to make you a guarantee that the Fed was eventually going to raise its inflation target and that we would have a new higher inflation target. And I just want to go on record and say, even though that hasn't happened yet, I still stand by that guarantee because I think that's going
1: to happen. Okay, well, we'll hold you to it, Chris. All right, Tom. Of course, on Twitter at QTR Research and the French Finance Substack, quote the raven.substack.com, right?
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. All right, brother. Speak to you soon. Take care.